Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, if this is your first time here, or the first time in a long time, we just want to say we're absolutely delighted that you would share part of your weekend with us. And, you know, anytime somebody new uh, comes, I always think it's probably a little nerve-wracking. You know, you go to a new place. I know when I go to a new place, I, I, you know, I'm a little uncertain, not too sure. So I always like to let new people know what the inside scoop is around here. Uh, so you feel a little more at ease and relaxed, like who we are and what we're all about. We, uh, we're a church on a mission. And uh, that mission, we try to stay laser-focused because we want to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing around here is connecting people to Jesus uh, and to one another. We really believe that God has given us a message of hope to share with people. And uh, we believe God has strategically put us right here in Sarnia. He didn't put us in Sarnia just to enjoy the beautiful beaches or just to enjoy the beautiful um, parks and uh, trails that you can walk on and bike on and the affordable housing, all that kind of stuff. We believe he's put us here to really share the greatest story that's ever been told to mankind, that God actually loves people and has a plan for them, their lives. In fact, he proved that love by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And so we love to see, have the opportunity to connect people to Jesus. And then, of course, we just believe life is so much better when you do it together. You know, I don't think we're designed to live in isolation. We're built for relationships. So that's kind of who we are in, in a phrase. We're all about connecting people to Jesus uh, and to one another. Um, I also wanted to say for those, I, I see there's a fair amount of new people. Brad, I see you're related to half of Sarnia, and, uh, and you brought them here this morning. And um, also, I heard that there's a large group of heritage students here. I, are you here? Where are you? Let me hear you. Ah, there you guys are. Good to have you here as well. Um, I heard that you can be rowdy at times, so that's the word on the street. You know, just before we jump into our message, I just wanted to let you know... Um, we had a, a passing of um, Fred Chapman, 95 years old. God really blessed him with a long, long life. Uh, that is the father of Linda Wilsey, Wilsey and the granddaughter of Kim and Ralph Calderon-Diaz. So keep that family in prayers. They're just making all those arrangements and adjustment, adjustments to, uh, you know, life without granddad and, and without uh, their dad. Let me give a shout out also for those who are joining us online, whether you're watching from your living room or you're on a break at work or in your car, we're so glad to have you join us this morning. Listen, four weeks ago, we kind of entered this new series called God in the Shadows. Uh, we're trying to figure out, sometimes we feel like uh, that we're all, we've been left alone and that God's nowhere to be found. In fact, I, I'm sure most people at different times in life have, have said that question, God, where are you? Like, where are you? in the midst of all the, the trouble that's happening around me. Um, as I was thinking about that and, and about God in the shadows, I, 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 of course, I couldn't help but think of this book that we're studying, the book of Esther. And, and we've said this, and, and many people have said it, that the book we're studying is a very odd book. It, it's a strange book, in fact, because the fact that there is a Bible, or a book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God is very odd. In fact, I think if you went down to uh, the streets of Sarnia and you asked people that maybe weren't even considered church people, you know, really maybe don't even know much about Christianity, if you said to them, do you think that there would be a book in the Bible that doesn't have the name of God in it? Even them, I, I, would, I think they would say, doesn't make sense. Don't Christians read a Bible to learn about God? 
So yeah, there, there couldn't be a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. And I think even sometimes Christians, we think, why would God allow there to be space for a book that doesn't even mention his name? I mean, why give 10 chapters, 167 verses, and not mention the name of God? You know, maybe you might think, was it a mistake that this book was even included in the Bible? Well, over the last four weeks, I, I hope that we're coming to to grips the understanding we're discovering that though God is not mentioned in the book, he's everywhere in the book. And in fact, it seems like you can trace his hand on every chapter. His thumbprint is on every verse in the book of Esther. And though you and I have many times have wondered, you know, where is God in certain situations? And sometimes we're, we're, we feel like we've been left out on our own that he's left us to defend ourselves. Not that we question God's love for us, but we say, yeah, God loves us, but I don't think he cares about this situation that I'm in. You know, sometimes we feel like God's given us a silent treatment, like maybe we've done something wrong, and so he's been really quiet. And so when we don't feel him or sense his presence or feel like we hear from him, we have this natural tendency to assume that God has left us. And so we ask those questions. God, where are you? And I think what we're discovering is that God is just, by the way, just as purposeful when we cannot see him as he is when we do see him. And as we're making our way through this book of Esther, we're getting glimpses that God is always present. Though he may be in the shadows, he's always present. Because nothing happens that he is not aware of. You see, because he's always working behind the scenes of our life. And sometimes he's out on the main stage under the lights and we recognize it's God, but other times he's behind the curtain. Right? But he's always working behind the scenes of our life. And as we've been reading through this book, it's a time period where it's hard to even understand, hard to comprehend, because life is so different in this time than it is that we're living in now. For instance, this is a time where one man's uh, laws infected, affected the entire world. What he says, everybody listens to. His, his word is the final word. Um, I, I was just trying to think uh, what that would be like for people living today. If, if someone made a decision that infected all of the citizens of Canada and all the Americans and all the Brazilians and all the Germans and all the British and all those who you know, lived in the continent of Africa and all those who live in Asia and all those who live in Australia, it's hard to comprehend that one man can make a decision to infect the entire world. But that's exactly the period that we're looking at as we're studying the book of Esther. So let's just get a quick recap. Chapter 1, we discover there's trouble in the kingdom. The king's marriage is a mess, and uh, there's so much drama going on in chapter 1 that even Dr. Phil couldn't be able to fix the problems that are happening in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, it's the very first episode of The Bachelor. You know, all these beautiful women, they get roses, and they're, and they're hoping to be the final woman standing with the final rose. And of course, someone does. Her name is Esther, and she becomes the queen of Persia. Nobody could ever predict it that a Jewish orphan girl living in exile would become the most powerful and influential woman in the world. And that's what happens in chapter two. And then in chapter three, of course, the story gets a little bit more interesting because now a villain has been uh, introduced into the story of Esther. And what we discover that the Bible says that Haman is actually an enemy of the Jews. So you can only imagine you get a Jew and an enemy and Jew in the same room. There is going to be some tension. Some sparks are going to fly. In fact, the tension's so thick, you can slice it 
with a knife. And, and Haman has come up with this rule, this new law, and he's got the king's approval as well. This law that is going to, where Jewish people will experience genocide. And what's so interesting about this time period, unlike ours, when we make a law, we can sometimes change the law after it's been made. But in the land of the empire of the Medes and the Persian, once a law was made, it was a done deal. No changing. You could not change that law. And so a law has been put in place that the Jews' days are basically numbered. I said last week that God often develops us most times in the middle of a crisis. And crisis has hit for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. And then in chapter 4, we, we learn that Esther, who is a, is a Jew, but nobody knows it because her cousin Mordecai has said, keep it a secret. Don't tell a soul. So he's, she's been married to the king almost seven years and nobody knows that she is a Jew. And then word gets back to her that her cousin Mordecai is out in the marketplace and is in mourning, is in sackcloth and ashes, and she cannot figure out why. She's living behind the uh, palace walls. She has no idea what's going on outside. She's never even heard of this law. And so she sends out a couple of employees to find out why her cousin is in mourning and in sackcloth and ashes. And, And they come back and they report to her everything about this new law. That the people of God, that their days are numbered. And the employee comes back and tells Queen Esther that your cousin says, you got to do something about this. You've got to go before your husband and plead for mercy. And so what we discovered is that Esther herself is in the middle of personal crises. She hasn't seen her husband for over a month, for over 30 days. She's living under the same roof, but she's had no interaction with him at all. She's got a personal crisis. She's got the, her corporate crises because her people are going to be wiped out. And we said last week, crises will often begin to change the direction of our life. And we looked at that one particular verse that's probably the most famous verse in all the book of Esther when Mordecai says, who knows that you have not been brought to royal position for such a time as this. Now, now Esther is scared to death, believe it or not, scared to death to go and talk to her husband and ask for mercy. You think, why would she be so nervous to go talk to her, her husband? Well, the rule are in the lands of the Medes and Persia, you didn't go into the king's presence without being personally summoned. It didn't matter if you were the wife or not. You just did not go unless you were asked to go. And so there's Esther trying to figure out things in her own mind. She's in a crisis. I haven't seen my husband in over 30 days. She knows he's got a harem full of beautiful women that can satisfy his every desires. And so she's been over 30 days. It's been a month since they've been together. And Mordecai is reminding her, who knows that God has not put you in this place for such a time as this? Who knows that God has not made you the queen of Persia for such a time as this? Esther, this is your destiny. And we said last week, God's time is always prime time because we look at the situation, we go, well, how can Esther help? She's in the middle of personal crisis. She's in the middle of corporate crisis. How in the world can she help? But that's when we discover God's time is always 
prime time. And I don't know if Esther's beginning to wonder in her own mind, like, has she lost favor with her husband, the king? Because the previous queen, if you remember, Queen Vashti, she was a knockout. She was a 12 out of a 10, and she lost favor with the king, and she was no longer the queen. And so I don't know if she's beginning to form some ideas in her mind as to all that is happening, but she knows that she has not been with the king in over a month. And I think she's beginning to think, how can you ask me to do something? Can you see that my personal life is even in the middle of crises? But we would think, well, you know, you're the wife. You just go and you talk. What, what's the big deal? I mean, we might want to say, Esther, are you just kind of making uh, a mountain out of a molehill? molehill? Like, Esther, are you not being overdramatic? Maybe you should be the drama queen. Like, this seems a little ridiculous that you won't go and speak to your husband about this matter. Maybe some of you who are married um, have experienced where you're a little nervous maybe to talk to a spouse. You know, maybe you got a brand new car and one of the spouses are out and they, they back the car into the light pole and all of a sudden there's this big dent in their brand new car and you come home and you're just a little tentative about um, breaking the news to what happened to the car. Or, or maybe you have purchased something quite expensive but, and you're a little nervous to, to let them know. And in fact, I got a great illustration. I had a very close friend of mine. He called me after about a year of marriage. I was best man at their wedding. He says, Donald, it's about 8 o'clock at night, Donald, my wife won't speak to me. And I don't know why. I said, really? You have no idea. Don't have a clue. I said, Joe, Joe, oops, I didn't mean to say his name. Um, I said, listen, I've known your wife a lot longer than you have. I had been friends with her a lot longer. I had set them up. And I said, I, I know Wendy. <laughs> Um, okay, so it's Joe and Wendy. Okay, that's, that's out there. So I, I know her, and she's such a great, like, this is not her. You, Joe, are you sure you haven't done anything? After about 15 minutes of conversation, he finally said, well, I, I bought something without talking to her about it. I said, oh, like, like what? Did you buy a new watch, or did you buy a new flat screen TV? Well, no, um, I bought a brand new Harley Davidson without talking to her about it. I said, is she still living there with you? <laughs> like, it just seemed so. Un he said, but Donald, <clears throat> you don't understand. <clears throat> it was only $10,000. Like, I was saving thousands of dollars if I bought it today. Really? And he says, I'm sure Wendy's always known that I wanted a bike. And finally, he just said, so I, I think she's upset about that that I spent that much money without talking to her about it. But I thought she'd be so happy to ride on the back with me. That would be her dream. Now, you know, I look at that story and I kind of chuckle, uh, you know, th that he had this conversation with his wife, but he was never in danger that she would kill him. Well, actually, maybe in this story it could have. But, but this, is, well, this is what happened with Esther. Like she, she's nervous to go and, and talk to her husband because she knows she's going to actually put her life on the line, which we think... How, how can that even be possible? This is a different time than we live in. Nobody goes and talks to the king, even if it's your husband, without being summoned. And so Esther is terrified to go, and she speaks to her husband without, without being summoned is, 
is crazy. That's why she's so terrified. I mean, we would think, what's the big deal? You just want to go and ask a favor. But she finally comes to the resolve we looked at last week, and she says, if I perish, well, then I perish. That is her resolve. If death is what awaits me, I am okay with that because I am going to do what is right. Well, let me just give you an idea <clears throat> what King Xerxes was like. You may then have a better idea why she might have been nervous to just go into his presence without being invited. Uh, the Greek historian Herodias it gives us some insight into the kind of man that he was. He, he was no bowl of cherries to be living, living with. In fact, recently they had discovered an inscription that said uh, about King Xerxes. He wrote this about himself. He says, I'm Xerxes. I'm the great king. I'm the only king. I am the king of the entire earth, far and near. Now, the last time I heard a king talk that much about himself, he didn't, didn't end so well. Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when he just started bragging about who he was? And then this Herodias, as I was saying about the, um, who wrote about Xerxes, he, he says he was the tallest and most handsome uh, of all the Persian kings. He was ambitious, he was ruthless, and he was jealous. And the proof of his ruthlessness is told in some of his war stories that he talks about. There was a man named Piathus. Piathus had come to King Xerxes and offered him a ton of money, a huge amount of money, to help offset the cost of of the war that was against Greece. And the king was so moved by his loyalty that he would do that, he actually sent all the money back and then sent him gifts. Well, then shortly afterwards, Piathus came to King Xerxes and says, would you allow my oldest son to remain home and not go to war? King Xerxes was so angry for that kind of request that he ordered the son to be cut in half and the army marched to war between the two halves. Then there's the time when he was, uh, he was on an expedition against the Greeks and he had 100,000 soldiers and he's on one side of a river and, and these brave 300 Spartans were able to hold off uh, the whole entire army of 100,000 people. And so what happened is King Xerxes had some bridges made so they could get across the river and finally after these bridges were made, finally, the next day they were going to cross, a huge storm came and knocked out those bridges. He was so angry, he, uh, he, he uh, had one of the, um, the soldiers whip the river 300 times. He had his army shout and curse the river. Then he took the shackles and he threw it into the river claiming that he had sovereignty even over the waters even though he had not been able to cross, cross over. And the final proof of his absolute dominance is he brought in the engineers who built the bridges and then had them beheaded. On his way, one time on his way back to Susa, he was wintering in the city of Sardis, and when he tried to make advances on his sister-in-law, and she kind of rejected his advances, he was so upset that he had her and her husband, his brother, tortured to death. This is the kind of man, is it no wonder maybe the queen was a little tentative to go into the presence of her husband without being summoned? And so all this drama is unfolding, and yet God is managing all the pieces. He's putting them all in place. And last week we kind of ended where the curtain kind of closed on the end of chapter 4. The villain, Haman, has made his move. The enemy of the Jew has spoken and everything's been put into action. 
the slaughter of the Jews, every man, woman, boy, and girl, young and old, on one day would see their demise. And so Esther is getting ready to put her life on the line. The risk is great, but she's willing to receive the death penalty so she can save her people. She has told her cousin Mordecai, get all the Jewish people to fast and to pray for three days. And after three days, I'll try to initiate the plan. And so with that, let's take our Bibles and pick it up where we left off last week. The book of Esther. And we'll pick it up in chapter 5 of Esther. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. I read that and go, okay, well, uh, there's a problem here. There's no yelling match going on. Queen just kind of marches in there and, and everything seems to be okay. She wins the favor of the king as she walks into the room and King Xerxes for some reason has suspended all of the Persian protocol as she comes in. Remember back in chapter 4 she says, if I perish, I perish. I don't think Esther was really expecting that kind of reception. I think she was very nervous as she was getting ready to go to the back of the, of the hall, the king's hall. Because no one just walks into the king unannounced and says that their agenda is more important than his agenda. Not even your own wife, the queen. And yet the, queen, the king tilts the scepter to Esther, which obviously was very good news uh, for Esther. And she walks forward, and you can only imagine every eye is on the queen as she's making her way down the hallway. I just picture her palms are probably sweating. I picture her heart is pounding. In fact, maybe so loud that the people on the side are, can hear it. Because the affairs of the court has been suspended. You can just imagine what everyone's thinking, this must be so important if the queen is willing to put her life on the line. I think it probably was the longest walk that the queen ever made in her life from the back of the room to the front where the king's throne run. Obviously, the king's in a good mood. <laughs> he's, she's caught him on a good day because he says, Esther, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, I'll give to you. And as I'm reading through the story, I'm wondering what in the world is Esther going to say? Like, what do you say? I was talking to some people in the first service, have never heard this story before. Doesn't know how it turns out. They're like, I, I never heard this story before. This is kind of exciting. And some of us know the end of the story, but as I was reading this once again, I thought, what was going through Esther's mind? What is she going to ask for? Plan A has been accomplished. I'm now in the presence of the king. It's now to initiate plan B, to speak to him and beg that he would spare the life of my people. So that's kind of what you're thinking that she probably is going to ask. But when you read this passage of Scripture, 
She says in verse 4, if it pleases the king. Okay, so you're thinking this is the big moment. This is the big ask. Esther replied, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. I'm going, what? You've invited him for lunch? I mean, we're talking, this is a serious moment. You've invited him to a banquet? I mean, I've heard it said before that you can win man's heart through his stomach. But Esther, this is a little over the top as you're reading through this story. I would have thought that when she asked that question, I want to invite you to the banquet, everybody would have been suspicious. Like, why would they be going, why would she put her life on the line to just have lunch? Something is up. She's got more, there's more to the story. I thought everyone's suspicion would have been heightened, especially Haman. But it seems like Haman's defenses have been lowered because he too has been invited to the banquet. And so in verse uh, 5 and 6 it says, uh, Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom. I will give it to you. He's saying, Esther, just spit it out. Like, just tell me, what is it that you want? Why did you risk your life to come and talk to me? Finally, the time is to ask. He says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And we think to ourselves, okay, Esther, now is the time. His belly is full. He's in a good mood. Go with the big ask. This is the moment that she has been waiting for. This is the moment that the Jewish people have fasted and were praying for. And she carefully forms her words and she asks the king and Haman to come to lunch tomorrow. Which honestly, you read that and you go, really? Like really Esther? This is prime time. Have you ever seen your husband in such a good mood? Why wouldn't you be asking now? I feel like if I had been Esther, I would have been nervous to wait another day. I mean, it's not every day that the king is in such a good mood. Why take the chance of provoking him and not telling him and inviting him to come again? I I don't know about you, but uh, I I don't know. Did she get cold feet? Did she forget what she was going to say? Like, what, what is going on there? Is she just too nervous to ask the question? Did she choke on her words? Could she not spit them out? Were her palms sweating? Were her knees knocking? I mean, she is in the presence of the two most powerful men in all the entire empire. And she's, in fact, one commentator said, it would be like standing in front of king, the king and Hitler. Now, a lot is going to take place in the next 24 hours of the story. There was a TV show uh, a few years ago back called 24. I don't know if some of you might remember it. Jack Bauer was given 24 hours to always stop some major terrorist attack in the world. And the episode would end. And you have to wait till the next episode. And another 24 hours he was given to stop a terrorist attack. Like, it's 24 hours. Well, this is kind of the intensity that's happening right here. In the next 24 hours, things are going to be settled. And during these 24 hours, things are going to get tense. They're going to get dramatic. They're going to get exhausting. And I tell you all that just to help paint a picture of what's taking place here. Every hour is ticking, 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 ticking. Why is Esther waiting Every moment counts. 
In fact, as you continue to read through the chapter, you find out that Mordecai, uh, not Mordecai, but Haman is so thrilled that he has been invited to the king, uh, to the luncheon with the queen and with the king, that as he leaves the luncheon, he's, he kind of walks with a swagger. Like he just had a private luncheon with the queen and with the king. And everything seems to be going so well until he gets to the king's gate. And he walks to the king's gate, and there, as the Bible says, that Jew, Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't pay him any honor, and it infuriates him. It just makes him so angry after having such a high that, that afternoon. And so he, he goes back home, and I don't know if he broke out in that song, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. You know that song, you know? Um, when you're perfect in every way, I keep looking in the mirror. I get better looking each day. That might have been his theme song. It seems like as though Haman is kind of a narcissist. Everything is about him. And so he goes home. He tells his wife, you'll never guess who I got invited to go to lunch with. And maybe they're all guessing, oh, was it, uh, was it Belteshazzar? You know, he just opened up that new five-star restaurant down the street. Oh, it was the guy that opened up the new Lexus place? No, 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 no. Better than that, I got invited by the queen herself. I didn't even think the queen liked me. But she invited the king and me alone for a luncheon. And guess what? I'm invited back again tomorrow. I was such good company. She wants me to come back. However, as good as all this is, he says in verse 9 and 10, I have no satisfaction as long as that Jew, Mordecai, is still alive. And, and so it says that his wife and his friends and his family gathered together and said, hey, listen, why don't you build like a 75-foot-high gallows so everybody can see and hang Mordecai on it tomorrow? Go ask the king if you can. And then when they see him hanging 75 feet, five feet high, everybody will know, Haman, that you have the power over life and death. And it really excited him. He loved that plan. And he couldn't wait to go back to the palace tomorrow to ask the king for that request. Now Esther has no idea what is taking place. Uh, maybe she was lying in bed and even heard the pounding of the hammers as they're building this 75-foot high gallows. This is where we stop in the story and go, okay, God, where are you? Do you not understand your people are going to be experiencing genocide shortly? Like, where are you in all of this mess? That's when we shout out God. We don't, we don't get it. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And that's when we say, God, I, I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in this mess. God, you better show up quick. You better do something ASAP. There is no time to lose. That's what's happening here. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, That night... Oh, things are moving along this 24-hour period. It says, that night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed uh, Bithana and uh, Teresh to the king's officer who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendant answered. Of all the nights, <laughs> this is the night that the king experiences insomnia. 
The king of Persia cannot sleep. I don't know if he's thinking about maybe troubles that are happening in the empire. I don't know if he's thinking about a war. I don't know if he's thinking about, well, I wonder what Esther wants. But for some reason, he cannot get comfortable in his bed. He cannot fall asleep. He's watched all the late night TV shows. He's ran on the treadmill. He's done everything possible to wear himself out, and he's still wide awake. So he calls a servant in. Says, go get one of the scrolls. Let's just read some history. It would be like us, um, you know, maybe having a trouble to sleep and saying, hey, go get one of the, the documents about all the laws that they pass in Parliament. It'd be like, that would cure anyone with insomnia. It put you to sleep right away. So maybe that's what he's hoping. But what, here, what happens when he opens the scroll? By chance, by the struck of luck. The scribe starts reading the story. Can you imagine? I mean, the servant goes into the vault. He's going to pick out what scroll, and he just randomly picks this scroll. He comes back, and he begins to read the exact account of when Mordecai saved his life. It just happened. Mordecai overheard a story of, of a plot to assassinate the king. He reports it to Esther. Esther then goes to the king and gives Mordecai all the credit. And so when the question asks what's been done to honor him, the servant says nothing, and I'm sure the king would say nothing. You mean someone saved my life and nothing has been done for him? And so it says there as he's beginning to think, how could I honor a man that I delight in? And as that's going through his mind, it seems that Haman shows up for work a little extra early. Haman walks in the room and the king says to Haman, hey, what, what do you think would be good? For the king to do something for who he delights in. We find that in, in verse 7. He's asking that question. And, and then Haman comes up with this elaborate plan, by the way. I don't think he just thought of that on the spur of the moment. He's been thinking about that for a while. He's been thinking, okay, if the king were to honor me, what would I want? In fact, let's see what he says here in verse um, 7 of chapter 6. So he answers the king, For the man the king delights to honor... Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. So here's this narcissist, Haman, who thinks it's all about him. And he comes up with this huge, elaborate plan. He says, get an outfit that the king has worn. Don't get one of those knockoffs that looks like the king. No, something that he has worn, a horse that he has ridden. And let someone that, you, that he really highly esteems, let him also be entrusted with the processional for this to happen. Can you imagine? Can you only imagine the expression on Haman's face when Xerxes says, that's a great plan. Go and do it. Do what you have said to Mordecai the Jew and Haman who is an enemy of the Jew and now he's going to lead a processional of a Jew through the whole city and proclaim this is what happens to a man that the king delights in. Well you can imagine how humiliated he is. You continue to read through the story. You find out after it's all done he runs home. He tells his family. He tells his wife. He tells his friends all that has taken place on that day and you know what they say? Oh my goodness. I think I think I think you're going to come to the end of your life because everything has begun to change for you, Haman. The man that you thought you were going to be killing in just a couple hours, now everything has changed in his favor. 
And at that particular time, as all that's going through his mind, it says that uh, the king sent one of his employees to get Haman, and he was rushed off to lunch. And so here's Haman. He's having lunch with the royals, and, and, it's, a, and it's a fantastic lunch. And the king finally says to Queen Esther, okay, Esther, what is it? I told you I'll give up to half the kingdom. Now is the time. And so I, I think Esther has, you know, she has uh, formed these words very, very carefully. And she says to him, basically, would you spare my life and my people's life? Which is a little confusing to the king, thinking, well, who would dare touch the wife of the king? And she says, Haman, your trusted, your trusted servant. Which then he just is enraged. And he says, he walks out of the room. At that particular point, Haman knows, he knows this is not good for him. He knows the king is going to kill him. His only uh, dying thing to do, left to do, is to, is to beg for the queen's mercy. Because she, he had no idea that the queen was a Jew. All he was interested in was getting rid of that old man at the gate. He had no idea about the queen. And, and so as he's begging, it says somehow she, he got on top of the queen. And, and the king walks in and sees that, and he is furious and someone shouts out hey he's built a 75 foot high gallows for Mordecai to be hung on today the king says go hang him go hang him wow 24 hours what an incredible change of events and no one could have predicted it listen to this there's an angry king there's a banished queen, there's an orphan girl, there's a Jewish employee, there's Haman the narcissist, there's a lunch date, there's an evening construction, there's a night of insomnia, and a servant who just happens to pick the right scroll to be read that night. What an incredible chain of events. Only God could do something like that. Move all those pieces around for something like that to happen. That is the providence of God. And I've said it throughout this series over and over again. God is always working behind the scenes of our life. In fact, in Ephesians 1.11, it says God is working all things out for the conformity of his will. Philippians 2.13, it says he's working it all out in you. So as God is working behind the scenes of your life, he's working out to the conformity of his will. He's working it out in you. And he's working it all that, all those little details, by the way, for your good and his glory. That's the God who works behind the scenes of our life. When we're tempted to say, God, where are you? My friend, he is working. He's always at work. In fact, that's why we, we love to declare that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, well, it says, the Lord declares, you know, I have plans for your life, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and for a future. See, that's our God. And he's always at work. Maybe not on the limelight. Maybe not on the front stage. Maybe, maybe in the shadows. But he is always at work for your good and his glory. There is no mention of God's name anywhere in this book. And yet it is impossible not to see him at work in every verse. I say all of this to remind us of this. Even when life seems so out of control, God is at work. Those last 24 hours, God was doing so much maneuvering to make sure that all the pieces were going to be put together. A sleepless night of a king and just the right scroll pick to be read to him with Mordecai's name attached to the scroll. 
So even when life seems to be out of control, God is at work. Even when life seems to be so unpredictable, God is at work. I mean, Esther and Mordecai have been on this roller coaster ride, ups and downs and ups and downs, so much that probably had to take gravel just to settle their stomach so they wouldn't get motion sickness. And life will always be unpredictable. It will always be unpredictable. And that's why we can say even when life seems to be unpredictable, God is still at work. And even when evil seems to be unstoppable, God is at work. I mean, you would think, how is any way this plan going to stop that has been put together by the enemy of the Jews? But even when, even when uh, evil seems to be unstoppable, God is at work. A law has been put together to wipe out the Jews. A seven-story gallows has been built. An enemy of the Jew, a callous dictator, and the loss of sanity everywhere. And that's when those questions begin to arise. God, where are you? Evil seem to be pervading everywhere. And that's when we are reminded that even when evil seems to be unstoppable, God is at work. Psalm 121, verse 4 says, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I like how one commentator puts it. This is another way of saying, he says, God never goes off duty, so when you have trouble sleeping, he's awake with you. And when you finally drift off to sleep, he doesn't. Because God is never tired, and so you can be. Because God never sleeps, you can. You don't have to be in control of every situation or circumstance or people, because God already is. And God's plans are moving with perfect precision and perfect timing and perfect power to accomplish all that he wants to accomplish according to his will all by the way for your good and for his glory this is called living by faith living by faith even when you can't see god or feel god or hear god or sense his presence remember he may be in the shadows but he is always present in our lives and god is at work even when we don't see it even when we don't recognize it and that's the great part. God is working it out. He's working it out for the conformity of his will. And he's working it out in us for our good and for his glory. That's why we sing hymns like, Great is thy faithfulness. That's why we can sing, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Because there's no one like him. And that's why we can call him our friend. Let's pray.